Hey, welcome. You're listening to My Teeth Need Attention. I know last time I said I was going to try to get onto a regular schedule. I haven't done so yet. I don't know. It's just busy and... Uh, especially the interview episodes, they're a little difficult. I have to do not a ton of editing, but a fair amount of editing. And then I, I, I don't know, I feel like they're overwhelming, but they're not overwhelming. I'm an idiot. I'll try to get them done quicker. <clears throat> so today's episode is going to be, uh, featuring Silk Breeze, uh, records and an interview with Tom Lax, the man behind Silk Breeze. Uh, we did an interview a while ago. Um, he, he was just great to talk to. I've met him a couple times in person uh, here in Rochester and then down in Philly. I think it was the last time I was in Philly. Well, for a show. Uh, the Dead Sea came over uh, a handful of years ago and played Johnny Brenda's. We talked about that a little bit. Um, that was a show that Robbie Yates, it was a tour Robbie Yates couldn't get into the States. We talked about that a little bit as well. Um and so, yeah, I saw, that's the last time I think I saw Tom in person. So, um, yeah, in the background here, <clears throat> you're listening to a, an LP by Alice Sayer, which is a Bardo Pond side project that Silk Breeze put out. Uh, they've done a couple things with the Bardo people. So I'm going to play this. I'm going to play uh, a bunch of other Silk Breeze recordings, then get into the interview, and then play a bunch more after that. Um, some of which we talked about in the interview, some of which we probably didn't talk about in the interview. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, <clears throat> I want to thank uh, Tom right off the bat uh, for giving me the time for the interview and just being a great host or a great guest. And uh, let's get to it. Uh, so this is uh, Alice Sayer right here, and uh, there'll be a collection of stuff after this. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what I play uh, afterwards. Uh, always the... Uh, Playlist and other show notes will be in the uh, the actual show, you know, podcast, and they're up on uh, myteethneedattention.com. Um, you can follow us on <clears throat> Apple Podcast, and uh, I'm on Spotify still. I don't know. I should probably just remove that. But um, if you go to myteethneedattention.com, there's links to various ways to listen to this, uh, including Mixcloud as well, and I have a, a Instagram account for the uh, show as well. All right, let's get to it. This is Alice Sayer, uh, and you're listening to My Teeth Need Attention. Thanks.
She's copying a buzz on something that was melted. Pat thinks that it's good, and maybe she should, cause it's always good. She's knocking around, she's always up to knocking around. She's always up to knocking around. She's knocking around, she's knocking around. back we're hearing in the background here is uh the guided by voices so that was melted pat i'm playing from the tart and furthered uh cd compilation of singles um that's one of my favorite comps um i guess i never really realized it's all just compiled singles from silk breeze um but i mean you know a lot of those are kind of hard to find um but i've been tracking various ones down like the monkey 101 and things like that uh, but you know, th- compiling, making a compilation is not always an easy thing. Sequencing it right, and this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that it's just basically the singles uh, that he compiled. Before that, you heard "Scorched Earth Policy" with "Turn Your Eyes Away," and that's from the "Going Through a Hole in the Back of Your Head" LP. Before that, uh, "Vertical Slit," Jim Shepard um, with "Metal or Meat." Uh, that's from the Live at Browns LP that uh, Tom put out just a few years ago. And we start the uh, show off with Alice Ayer, the Bartle Pond side project, with a track called Separate from History. And that's from the Philosophy of Living Fire LP. Um, so, yeah, Jim Shepard was something. Um, I think my first exposure to him was through the Tartan Furthered CD. Uh, there's a. Uh, V3 song out there at least at least um, and then my buddy John um, kind of told me uh, a lot about Jim Shepard and Vertical Slit and V3 and stuff like that and just been diving in ever since so all right we're gonna get to the interview now um, thanks again for listening uh, the interview lasts for I don't know it's like an hour or something like that and then I'm gonna play a bunch of more uh, soapy tracks after that um, but I'll talk about that later. All right, let's get to the interview. Thanks for listening. This is My Teeth Need Attention. Um, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for being on the podcast um, and reaching out. We've met maybe a couple times in person, I think. Uh, I, yeah, I rem- I'm, I'm sure I met you and John 
when we used to, I did two tours. Uh, with it, so I did the Shattering Tour, then Brother JT and, Bar- and Bardo Palm, and they came through Rochester. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think that's probably when I met you then. Yeah, and then we met um, down at the Dead Sea show the last time they were in the States, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, at Johnny Brenda's. two of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was kind of like such a uh, deflating um, trip, for I think, for me. I mean, like, it's, I, I was like, I'm fond of those guys, but having Robbie not be there was kind of like a bummer for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, it would for everybody, but, you know. Yeah, that was only the second time I saw them, too. Um, I saw them at, in New York at the Bowery Ballroom, maybe? Um, I don't know how much longer before that. Um, they came and, here in, like, 2011 or something like that, right? Was yeah, that, that, was? that was Philly, or? They played Philly then. Whenever, that, whenever they mounted that tour in the aughts, and uh, they had, I think, I think it was 2011 or 2008 or something like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's the New York one that I saw, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, you know, it was about, it was like a big room. And I was like, I drove all the way, me and my buddy drove from here, you know, so it takes a while. It takes like seven and a half hours from Rochester to get to New York City. And you're just fried by the time you get there. And so we just sat in the balcony. It was just a weird experience, like seeing him <laughs> in like a big space and stuff. Like I'd rather see him in a small joint. Oh, well, it was still cool to see them. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to go over, like, some, if you're cool with it, like, background information, like, where you grew up and stuff like that. Um, are you originally from Philly, or? No, I grew up in southern Ohio in the Appalachia section of, like, like southeast of Cincinnati, about an hour and a half away. And, you know, it was, like, one of those you know, just in the middle of nowhere. It was like really, it really was Appalachia. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you know, now because it's completely been destroyed by Oxycontin heroin. Oh, geez. It's just devastated that section of, uh, of Ohio. Yeah. But yeah, that's where I grew up. And, uh, you know, I was born in 1960. So like in the seventies, I was going to a lot of arena shows and the great, if there's anything great about being in that part of the country was that I was equidistant to Huntington, West Virginia, Lexington, Kentucky, Dayton, Ohio, and Cincinnati. So if you were on a band like like Rush or Nugent or somebody like that, you know, if we were hedonistic enough, we would maybe catch you three or four times on a tour. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Scranton, PA, so sort of also part of the Appalachians. <laughs> that would, that um, would definitely be on the uh, on that on that market for Huntington and Dayton. I remember like yeah. Alan, Alan Bishop, I think they grew up in Saginaw. So we compared a lot of like a lot of these old like center block hockey arenas that were the United Hockey Federation or whatever. Yep. And we the Dayton had the gems and uh, who knows what Saginaw's I'm, I'm sure Scranton had a team too. Uh, yeah, we didn't No, We didn't have a hockey team. We would have to, so the concerts uh, would never come through Scranton. So they'd go to Broome County arena, which is Binghamton. Okay. So kids would either go up to Binghamton, it was an hour away or so, or then you'd go down to Philly at Spectrum back in the day or the vet, right. but usually the Spectrum and, um, and see shows. I never went to the Spectrum. I think that was kind of done by the time I, so I grew up in 70. My, my kid, my brothers and sisters are all older than me. So they would like take me to the concerts once in a while, like up in Binghamton usually. Um, right. They'd go to Philly once in a while too, but I don't think they would take me because it was, a little too hairy for them or something. I don't know. 
I, I always heard stories about Philly concerts, you know, people throwing M80s at Aerosmith and stuff. Yeah. Like yeah, and the the impression of Philly from people in Scranton, especially back then, was like no one liked going there. <laughs> um, so I never went there for the longest time. Like, I don't know. I don't think we ever had a school trip even there, which is kind of silly. Like not going to like Liberty Bell and Constitution Hall and stuff. Uh, we would go to like Hershey Park all the time, but we'd never go to like Philly uh, as a school, and we never had overnight trips either. So we always had to keep our trips kind of quick. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, my family never, we drove through Philly to get other places. And then when I finally went there in college or after college, actually, I was like, what the hell, man, this place is great. Um, but the impression in Scranton was, yeah, just, no, you don't want to go there. <laughs> I wish people, I wish more people drove through Philly now. Instead of staying. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty intense, right? Uh, so you grew up in uh, Ohio. You went through all school and stuff in there. Did you go to, to college out there? Or? I went to college at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, which is tucked away in the fo- in the far southeast corner of the state. It's about an hour and a half from Columbus. Okay. So that's the only place. I mean, Athens now is on the touring grid for, for indie bands or whatever, um, alternative bands. But then it wasn't. You had to rely on bands. Somebody, there's a bar called Swanky's uh, in the, on the high road, the Main Street, Court Street, um, that would get shows from out of town. Somebody from Cleveland booked it because it was all their friends. Mm-hmm. But they did manage to get Burning the Invisibles and the Pagans one time. That was cool. Cool. Did you, uh, when you were there, is that how you got connected with like the kind of Ohio scene, like Jim Shepard and all those guys or? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, we would go to Columbus and Magnolia Thunder Pussy Records was directly across from Crazy Mamas, which was the, the new wave bar there. It's like upstairs from a carryout. And uh, Ron was always the clerk. Ron House was the guy that always waited on us. And he would just chastise us for our choices and from being from, Athens instead of the big city of Columbus used to crack me up, but uh, he was a, he was adversarially fun, you know, to, uh, to, you know, duke it out with, with words. (laughs) I remember getting a a human hands record once for a sausage sandwich. If I, if I went and bought him a sausage sandwich, he would (laughs) give me his human hands record. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Let's see who else. Uh, Robert Pollard was like guided by voices active at no. that point, or no? Yeah, it was, it was, that was down the road. Um, yeah, yeah. After after Propeller came out, that's when I met him. Yeah. Um, and you were out in Ohio, or were you in Philly? No, I, I moved here in '84, so I've been out here since then. But I knew, you know, Don Howland and Dan Dow and Jeff Evans and Jim, Mike, Tommy, Ron. I knew all them from the from my salad days okay and uh and then when i got the ball rolling with the label it just seemed natural to kind of go to those guys and see what they had if there's anything they wanted to get out there yeah so um were you playing in bands at all or no no not in any not in any real bands i mean like no. some house bands and stuff like that we had bands yeah yeah in college just fucking around what uh what what prompted starting the label like, were there labels that you were aware of that you were like, oh, I want to do something like that, or I could do that? Well, not really. I mean, I was doing a fanzine called Silk Breeze, and Tom Hazelmeyer was really into it, and he'd been offered uh, to do a 45 for Force Exposure. 
He was running AMRAP at that point, or yes, he was. Oh, okay. So uh, we sent them the the record. They rejected it. I don't think he realized they wanted like a novelty themed record. If you know that record, the one that came out on Force Exposure, they do uh, "I'm a Bug" and "Human Fly" by the Cramps. So okay, it was kind of like the niche that Force Exposure I guess wanted. So he had these recordings, and he said you should do it. And I didn't know the first thing about it, but he walked me through it. I went. I used his pressing plant for that and then the dead sea but yeah that that's what prompted it was i was given a halo of flies record which was the hottest band around at the time so i didn't know anything about distribution or, or how to set up accounts i mean like but i didn't need to because everyone wanted to play pay cod for it so i uh, had a very charmed <laughs> entry into the world of distribution it wasn't yeah. so much like that when i offered them helen said this by the dead sea yeah nobody wanted it but. <laughs> i still haven't figured out distribution <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny I, when revolver matador and then revolver came in and helped me out a lot with that but yeah yeah it was a lot of cold calling and like it was about relationships with stores and there are a lot more distributors than you had cargo and, and ajax to an extent yeah um caroline a lot of people would carry your records now it's not like that yeah, at geez, all. all all of those are gone yeah, the only one around is Revolver still. Yeah. Um, how did you, uh, how'd you hook up with the Dead Sea guys? How'd you meet them? I was a fan of DR-503 and wrote Flying Nun a letter. And then I got a letter back with some, I don't know, maybe there's some promo stuff in there. Uh, not records, but like posters or something. Mm -hmm. The chain... Uh, Shane Carter sent me a letter. He was, I guess, the guy that was, you know, elected to write that letter that day. And uh, he said, Michael Morley was chuffed by your comments. <laughs> but, uh, so that's as far as I got. He sent me a catalog. In the back of the Flying Nun catalog was a, was a thing for Expressway Tapes. And there were four tapes listed. And one was the Dead Sea. One was this kind of punishment. Rex Small Speakers and Peter Gutteridge. So right away, I was, I was like, wow, shit. I mean, like, what's this all about? But there are no prices. There was no contact information. So I don't know, maybe it was about a year or so later when the clean played um, at Maxwell's with the bat. No, the clean played. And uh, I saw Hamish again. I met Hamish when he'd come over with Belter Space and the bats, like even prior to the Dead Sea record, maybe. I can't remember. But uh, he said, oh, I can get you the address for Expressway. So he sent me the address wrote it down for me in a piece of paper and I wrote Bruce and he got right back to me about doing a record. Nobody but, wanted to do it. I mean, no one, no, I, at first I, I wanted to go through somebody else to do it. I, I never really, I didn't really foresee myself doing a record label. It was never really my intention, but I thought it was so good. And like a couple of people I had tapped for it weren't interested. So I just said, I'd do it myself. I had enough money from the sales of the Halo Flies to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And that was really the that was really the line in the sand. What, I didn't know it was quicksand at the time. <laughs> was <laughs> was Usa kills out at that point? Is that why you wrote Flying Nun? Or well, the first album is on Flying Nun. DR five hundred three is on Flying Nun. Oh, it is. Yeah, I don't think I ever re realized that. And I don't know where Usa. I think Usa kills came out while we were still like working on Helen said this. Yeah. 
Yeah, the timing of those things always confused me. I think it's just because some, you know, like uh, when you did Helen Says and Trapdoor, Trapdoor was a reissue of the cassette and that came out before, I think. Yeah, it's really blurry. I mean, there were, there were a lot of things, like Michael had a label called Diabolic Root that was cassettes. And I don't know, maybe I have a couple of those upstairs somewhere. Oh, but pre-Precious Metal? Pre, yeah. Okay. Pre, yeah. So... I guess he was doing stuff, and then the DR five hundred three came out. Then somewhere, Helen and Yusa meet, and then Trapdoor fucking exit was like kind of like slipped out into that, you know, at the same time. As like I said, I think there was only twenty five or thirty of them made. Yeah. So it didn't really. It wasn't really there to gain traction, which is funny. It's the one record that everyone asked me about. <laughs> like I did the other day. Well, yeah, I mean, it's understand. I mean, like I, that was my question that all those years back too. It's like, why? Why can't we do this? And they're like, ah, oh, so fidelity's so bad. And maybe now through like uh, computers and stuff, it would sound better. But then there were other things that came up, extenuating circumstances, and I was like, well, whatever, it doesn't really matter to me. They're not on my label anymore. Anyway, I, I assume it'll come out through Bada Bing or the highest bidder when it yeah, yeah. sees the light of day. <laughs> It's kind of funny how they, I I don't, I think of their fidelity as being fairly consistent across the board, <laughs> you know. So I don't, I don't. It's kind of odd that they're like, no, that one doesn't sound very good. But you know, I don't. You know, that, I never, I just never questioned it. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was their answer. So, okay, whatever. Sure. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it was really was the template for everything that came after that, especially for uh, uh, the live album, which was not intended you know Clima was never an intended record it was like just my cajoling them to do it that uh, got it done is that li- I, I think well, I, no I, it's, it's a it's a it's a live it's a fake, it's a fake live record yeah. right yeah okay yes, it's like we were i was i was down there in 92 and uh i was surprised that no one wanted to play for me <laughs> I mean, I was like, no one. I saw, I saw the renders in Christchurch when I got there, and I saw the renders in, in Littleton when I got when I came back to Christchurch. But they were the only band that was they were active, like the Terminals. Nobody was playing, Alistair, and then the Dead Sea thought they should uh, do a practice, at least practice for me. So then the whole idea got ramped up to do this fake live album. They, they went to it with great gusto, and uh, it's a great record. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I started getting into, I mean, basically my introduction to Silt Breeze was probably uh, 92, I don't know, something like that. I I did a road trip with a buddy of mine in 93 after I finished college or 94. And um, we, he basically was looking for a place to live. He finished grad school and he's like, I want to get, he was in Ithaca and he's like, I want to find some place to live. So it was a road trip trip. And we were meeting people on the net that, so we're nerds. So we knew people on the internet back in 92, 93 for mailing lists, email us. And um, so we went from town to town and we'd hit, of course, record stores and bookstores in every town. And he kept spying these, what at the time it was just white, black and white covers. That's all I knew of Silpreys. Like, <laughs> so he, he was just digging for stuff. And he's like, if you see anything that looks like this, grab it. And I'm like, all right. So I like, I think I remember picking up some Harry Pussy records for him and, you know, so we'd be digging and, and that's all I knew of. Silpreys was just 
black and white record covers. <laughs> um, and, and during that trip, that's when I heard Usa Kills before that, but I think I bought, I don't know what else I bought on that trip. Um, but I just remember being on the road and listening to a ton of various Silk Breeze records in the cars, zoning out, you know, driving across the Ever- Everglades or um, down in yeah, New Orleans and stuff like that. And then we ended up seeing Harry Pussy, I think a couple times in Texas. We were in Texas for like three weeks. And uh, they played one bar in Houston. And I was in the back of the bar, scared shitless of Adrian's. Like, I didn't, because I didn't know anything about the band. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I, yeah, I was literally afraid. Um, and that was, that was my introduction to like the world of Soap Breeze, more or less. Well, that was kind of like the first time I met them, I had never met them. Um, Mac had gone down to one of those Table of the Elements shows. I think the first one they did in Atlanta. Oh, and yeah. And Bill drove up. And so he, he had met them and uh, had nice things to say about them. So when they came up, I did. I used to do these Silk Breeze Presents concerts. And the last one I did was a two-day thing. And they came up the first time for that. I think that was in 94. And uh, they were over at Mac's house. He lived downtown then. So I walk upstairs. And I walk in this room. There's like him and, and Mark and Andrus and Bill. And everyone's just smoking cigarettes and just like staring at each other like it's some sort of chess tournament. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, wow, these guys are kind of weird. But uh, super nice people. We walked to Chinatown eight, And then they played. And they when they played the first time at the Kyber, they just, everyone's jaw just dropped. You know, they weren't, I don't think anyone knew what to expect. Mm-hmm. It was just complete silence. There was no, not even any talking in the room. And uh, and then I think, I remember one, at one point, like, there was a break and there was silence. And then, like, five seconds a delay, then there was some clapping. And then Bill said, do you guys like Devo? And a few people said, yeah. And then they just launched into some other, like, kind of, like, you know, assault. I don't think it had anything to do with Devo. It's pretty dry. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Um, what? Uh, this might be a stupid question. Uh, what, what's been the best-selling record on Silpreeze? Do you know? Oh, I, don't, I have no. I idea. don't keep track of shit. So I would think that Harsh Seventies Reality has gone through a couple of pressings. I mean, yeah, probably sold. Maybe sold about three or four thousand copies i mean nothing sold and maybe that guided by voices seven inch record i think that went through four or five pressings and then then some label in indianapolis bob had them buy it back and they they just they re, they repressed it two or three times so that's oh, okay yeah, yeah four or five pressings of a thousand yeah the uh yeah the other early silpreys record that i think i got obsessed with was the tartan further furthered compilation i think it's still one of the best compilations of oh, music nice. put together um and it's turned me on to like all the, i i just recently started like kind of tracking down like uh was it monkey 101 and right. gibson brothers stuff on there like there's those are bands i only knew from that comp really until recently then i started going to discogs and like finding the seven inches and stuff like that and they're not terribly expensive so um Dedicated Fool by the Gibson Brothers is a great record. Oh, okay. Second album on on uh, Homestead. It, 
it's usually not very expensive. Were they a, a are they a Ohio band? They were Columbus. They were yeah, Columbus. Okay. Yeah. Same eras, yeah, like uh Jim and Ron House stuff and Yeah, they came out uh in the early eighties and they were kind of like a Columbus version of Panther Birds, you know, this kind of deconstructed, like taking they were purists blues and and uh blues purists, rockabilly purists maybe, and mm -hmm. uh deconstructing it into like just grimy <laughs> it's just taking right. back his primordial you know exoskeleton or something like that yeah yeah um what uh who who usually handles uh the artwork for the label it's pretty much up to the band is it the band yeah, yeah. it's pretty i just i pretty much do my role is uh just executive producer for the most part the, the man who spends the money on getting everything done Right. I usually don't interfere at all unless somebody asks me to. Yeah. Have you ever gotten something where you're like, no? I have, and I still yeah. printed it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you uh, if you look at the first mic rep and the quote is the Super Aetis Volume 2, the cover is just a knockoff of like some French record about going to the beach. You'd have to, you'd have to see it to understand, but yeah. like Mike had told me well, the idea was back then, this was, it would have been about 91, 90, 91, when the first, when the idea of it coming out, well, putting it together reared its head. I said, we should do it like those actual records. At, at that point, like people weren't crazy about actual. Yeah. yeah. Like, they would be in a, two or three years. And I, he had one and I said, yeah, we'll, just, we'll do a gatefold and we'll do pictures and maybe we can even do it in French or so. He said, yeah, I like the idea of French lyrics. So he paid some, person to translate some of his lyrics to French. So he'd gotten that far. And uh, the idea was to do a full bleed jacket of the excavation of a turntable from an Indian mound, which sounded like a great idea. Mm -hmm. And then the back would be the history of rock and roll with Mike Rep and the quotas filling in all the gaps. And there'd be pictures on the gatefold and stuff. Then the gatefold became too expensive for me. So we just like, we're gonna just do a regular jacket and so when I went to New Zealand in 92, that was the idea that that's what it was going to be. When I came back in like May of 92, like he came out around June, he goes, I got the record all done. He goes, I, I shot the halftones, I got all the artwork, and he paid for all. This was like when you had to do film art, so it wasn't, it yeah, wasn't yeah. cheap. So he did it all, did it all himself. <clears throat> and uh, I was really excited to see it. And when I looked at it, I, I didn't, I couldn't recognize what it was, but it wasn't an Indian mound uh, being excavated with a turntable. And then I kind of put it up in the light. I was like, oh God, this is terrible. You know, it's like, <laughs> but, uh, he had, uh, my, my, he just done it himself. Cause I, I think he knew I wouldn't, I wouldn't say yes. And uh, also because he'd spent $35 translating lyrics to French, he wasn't going to waste that money. So he fell back on some French theme, you know, I, it just cracked me up. So it took me years to figure out like, it was like that kind of like chintzy Ohio, um, you know, like kind of like, you know, ethos of like, well, I'm not gonna waste this money on French lyrics. So I'll, I'll just knock off this French record, you know? And like, I mean, a lot of people through the years would be like, yeah, I would have bought that record except the cover is so terrible. <laughs> you should look it up if you don't know it. You'll see what I mean, it's funny.
But yeah, I have, I, mean, I have some of them like ripped though. I don't think yeah, I don't think I have that. No, when we redid it like a few years ago, we did a proper gatefold, did an extra album, and uh, the artwork was done with using his archives. Of yeah. Pictures. Oh, that yeah, that's I'm sure the copy that I have. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. It was yeah, really confusing I, too because it was called Stupor Aetis Two, and I didn't know what Stupor Aetis One was. It was a fanzine that he and Shepard had done, so it was even more inside than I, I even imagined. The BYG thing is funny because I remember coming across, I was at Newgrass, like Byron Coley's place. Right. I don't know. To see Cheryl Lamides, actually. Cheryl Lamides and Lauren Connors played a show together. Right. At Newgrass. Oh, God. 90 something. And um, just buying records. And there was one that was, it was like Ass Run something or other. It was that series, I think, that they kind of did. And it was BYG related, but I, I didn't know that layout at all. And then my right. buddy John, who was like, into BYG actual a lot. He's like, oh, that's funny, you know, and I'm asking him. And then we ended up aping it for a Pengo record. I was gonna say I thought there was a Pengo yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was one of John's John's like, hey, I want to do this. So I kind of like made a logo that was an H instead of an A and um <laughs> did the same layout and it's the Idi Amin uh theme. Yeah. I just remember like in the in the early 80s, like whenever you came across those records, they were so striking. You know, the unif uniformity of it all and like and it was always great musicians so they were easy records to buy yeah and those all those all came out in a pretty short time frame right are they all just no i don't know, I don't know exactly the exact history but they're all bootlegs okay. <laughs> i mean well that's the way i always understood that um byg recorded those people maybe surreptitiously i don't know but when uh they gained some traction here in the seventies in the States. And uh, when some of these bigger labels went to go like, thinking about purchasing or licensing the records, they realized they owned the rights to some of those songs. So those records went underground pretty quickly. <clears throat> oh, you could buy, I mean, like they would just, you would go to stores sometimes and there'd just be like stacks of them, you know, like Dewey Redmond, like 30 copies of the Dewey Redmond record for like $1.99, you know, hmm. but that's why, a lot of cutouts were then. Yeah. I remember Perubu's first album was a cutout. I don't think it took me years to find a copy of Non Alignment Pact that wasn't a cut corner, a punched hole promo. Mm -hmm. You've done some shows with Brian Turner over the years, right? Um, yeah. How'd you meet him? I'm sure I met Brian. Well, Brian did a magazine called, a fanzine called Teen Luch. And that was my first contact with him. And, uh, was he up in Wilkesbury at that point, or? Yeah, and yeah, so um, I would send him promos for his fancy, and then he went to FMU, which I already ha I had on my promo list, but there for a few years I, I kind of uh, fell off, got kind of burnt out, um, but I, I still made sure he got stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a connection with him. So his, but do you know Mark Erder? Yeah. Yeah, so he Mark was my boss in high school. Oh, <laughs> um, Mark was yeah. down here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he moved to Scranton, and I, I was just talking to him on my radio show the other day. I interviewed him uh, as part of our fundraising campaign. I always try to talk about like how I got into weird music and stuff, and he's how I got into weird music. Um, he was the boss of a department store I worked at in high school, um, right. and he had just tape mixtapes all over his he had a his office was the smallest office in the world it was like eight by eight 
and he had a boom box and just hundreds of mixtapes. Wow. Um, I was like, what's up with this guy? And I was listening to like my brother's music at that point. You know, he worked at a mall record store and it was all kind of crap, white snake and stuff. Um, and then Mark, me and Mark were, he was helping me clean the warehouse the one afternoon, one Saturday he came in to help me and he had the boom box set up and he started playing a tape and it was like the ball surfers on it. <laughs> and I was just like, what the fuck is that? Like that was, it was the weirdest thing I've ever heard. You know, I was just listening to radio, right. rock, rock radio and MTV crap and stuff like that. And, um, every song like that, he made them little, it was a mix of like the records he bought that last week or two. And it was that, and you know, the Pixies and Soul Asylum or something like that. And I was just like, it blew my mind. I'm like, can you make a copy of that for me? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he made a copy and I still have the tape um, with his handwriting and everything on it. Um, yeah. So then I, I was, so I was talking to him cause I knew he knew Brian cause um, I sort of recognized the name from back then. He used to go to New York every once in a while, the record shop, which also confused me. So I'm like, why do you need to drive to New York to record shop? There's a mall store, right? Like <laughs> I didn't get it. Right. You know? Um, and so he had this group of dudes that he would, uh, you know, go record shopping with the New York city and stuff like that. And the one guy ended up being Brian Turner. Um, yeah, he knew he, he got, he was aware of him cause Brian was doing a radio show down in, uh, Wilkesbury when he was, he was at Wilkes oh, okay. in Wilkesbury. So yeah. Brian and a couple other guys were doing radio shows and Mark would like tune in and somehow I wish I knew about the station. I didn't know about the station when I was a kid. Well, that's the same way for me in college at, at Ohio university didn't have, they had a cable radio station. You had to subscribe to cable to get the radio. And I, I didn't, was going to subscribe to the radio via cable. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a couple of jobs in Cleveland uh, in 81 and 82, which turned me on to uh, 80, 80, 81. I don't know around then it turned me on to case western and, and and cleveland state who had great djs and you heard all this stuff and then i'd go back down to my folks house and you could get waif in cincinnati was community radio but this guy named handsome clem carpenter did a hardcore show that i'd literally like drive out the ridge from my parents house behind this tobacco barn where it was like right on the you know like up on up the high point of the of the of this hill i could pick up the signal and just like smoke pot and with a flashlight and a notepad write down fucking hundreds of names of hardcore i mean like yeah all, everything i heard it would be back and ounce it and then like that was the same thing i have to drive to cincinnati to go to a couple stores and try to find these things or yeah. and when i went to cleveland at least i knew what to look for and then and eventually when we like settled into uh you know, in Columbus, you know, I already knew uh, about that stuff, like Parallel yeah, yeah. and Throbbing Gristle. All that rough trade stuff was, I'd already gone through that, but the more obscure stuff was, right. was all new to me. And that was all through college radio. Yeah. Yeah, I would go, uh, well, so the, the tape I got from Mark, I would basically, the months after that I started, I was basically looking for the records that those songs were from. <laughs> that was like my quest, you know, and I, I had a hard time finding them in Scranton. And then I, you know, go down to go down to Hershey because my brother was living in Hershey at the time and go to a mall down there. And, you know, that mall store happened to have some of the things which blew me away. Um, but yeah, so college, so I was I came to Rochester for college. I'd go back on break. And at that point, there was a college 
literally two blocks from my house and they switched their radio. They used to have closed circuit radio, like you're like over cable or whatever. Right. And they got a transmitter and I could barely get it at my house two blocks away. Um, but I started listening to that and I was like, they were playing really great, you know, underground yeah, awesome. college rock at that point. Um, but yeah, Scranton growing up had nothing like that. It was always just the stations to see on the office, rock 107 and, you know, you know, top 40 crap and classic rock and stuff like that. I remember a friend of mine in high school giving me a copy of rock and roll animal. And I'm just like, wow, what's this? You know? And, uh, and it was great. And, uh, but I couldn't find that record at the discount store or the, or like the hardware store, the, these little podunk places that, so you could you buy Alice Cooper and Black Sabbath, but Lou Reed was like too far out. Yeah. <laughs> and then I discovered used record stores. There was one on the University of Cincinnati, uh, Moles Records. And then I just discovered that was a whole that was a whole other world. Like everything I'd read in Cream, like Roxy Music, all these bands, if I had checklists to, to try to find, they were all right there for like a couple of dollars. Mm-hmm. I got caught up on, on all my uh, Phantom Pass right away. <laughs> um. What uh, what do you got planned coming up for the label? I know oh, I press, this, pressing is a pain in the ass right now, but yeah, this new CIA debutante records ready to I, go. Just um, got it. I just got yeah. in the mail yesterday. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> um, but other than that, I, I I don't know. I'm not sure what's going to go after that. It's like every every place is backed up. Like it's impossible to find a place that the hidden record plants don't exist anymore. They've all been sussed out. <laughs> I mean, I went that that got that record got done in France. Oh, and the covers got done in uh, in Canada. So I had to like just collate everything when they came in here and sh- ship them out. Yeah, yeah. The plants I use are yeah. Ten, last time I talked to them, which was a month or two ago, they were ten months out. Yeah, it might be worse now. I don't know. Well, I think the place I used, if you uh, are just doing vinyl, it's maybe fourteen weeks out. And uh, if you need covers and you need labels, let's add an extra six weeks. So that plus two months will get you, you know, 14 weeks, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's crazy. I mean, when I first started doing it, you could, I mean, when we did Climus more, I think I did 300 of those that sold out in a day, which shocked me. Jeez. But I... Uh, I got on the phone. They were, it was there was a place called Hub Serval. It was Preston Cranberry, New Jersey, but forty five minutes from here. And they took the order, and uh, I had the repress in three more weeks. So I mean, like it took start to finish for anything from Hub Serval back then was six weeks, maybe tops. Yeah. And I thought that was a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I started. Uh-huh. I did seven inches at first. Um, I'm here. Yeah, down in uh, you know United. I used probably. Yep. I was used to. Yeah, and they were like, I don't know. I feel like it was like a two month turnaround or something like that, um, yeah. or less. You know. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I was anxious and I would idiotically book release shows before I knew the record was really going to be in. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. I did that a couple times before I learned my lesson to not book a release show or even talk about the record until I had them in my hand. Um, I think I had the same sales rep in, at United for 20 years. Uh, those first, all those seven inch records were done at Hub Servo, or I mean, at United. And I forget her name now, Debbie. 
And she talked to me like it was the first time ever, every time she talked to me. Like we never had any rapport. As much as I tried, she had no interest. You know? Oh, I, I thought it was just me. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember uh, getting very cold responses from them. And, you know, I, I was new to it. So I like didn't answer the right, you know, ask the right question or, and, you know, you get, oh, no, it, it, you she, just she get a lot of like, she whatever. She had in records and I'd be like, Debbie, yes. I was like, hey, it's Tom Lex. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. No, like, how are you or anything like that? <laughs> they're still going right i'm sure they are yeah they because uh i there was like two plants across the street from each other and then i think they merged like nashville well, record one, and united was well there's memphis record pressing in memphis and nashville had the albums and united did the seven inch records all oh, right that's under, what under, they were under the same ages you know that wasn't oh okay there used to be a place called via Platte in louisiana which must have been in the middle of nowhere. But that they did those covers for me for Union by the Shalomides. And uh, whenever I needed covers that were like like flat mat, you know, reverse board, they were slightly larger than every other cover. So that shipping them was always a pain in the ass. But they did great work. And uh, then one day I called down there and they said, oh, we, uh, we're going out of business. I'm like, oh, well, really? I said, yep. And then, like, suddenly there was a fire, and they quickly rebuilt as a CD manufacturing place. <laughs> you know, that, that, world, that world of uh, the bayou and the delta down there where, where people don't believe in COVID and democracy and freedom or diets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, just I actually just got a CD pressed. It's the first CD I've gotten pressed. I mean, because I, I started doing like back early 2000s, I switched to doing CDRs just because I had right. all these computers around. I'd I'd freaking load them up with like multiple CD writers. So I'd be able to burn. I'd be burning multiple CDs at a time while I was working. So I'd rip off 100 CDs in like a day. Um, so I just kind of went with that and made all handmade covers and stuff like that. Did they do okay for you? You had an audience for them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I did. I did a CDR um, because I'm kind of a techie and I knew about that kind of crap. I bought when the first CD writer came out that was under a thousand dollars. It was nine hundred ninety something <laughs> Phillips. I bought it, and I bought a stack of blank CDs that cost about seven hundred dollars, and uh, no one could play them. Like I burned <laughs> them. They all burned fine. No one can play them. Every player would, you know, you get an error or glitch and skip. And I was like, ah, fuck that. Like, I can't do this. I, I put out a couple things like small runs because they're really expensive blanks. And uh, yeah, it didn't work. And then a few years went by and I noticed like some noise labels started putting out CDRs. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that shit's working now. Uh, and then lo and behold, it was. So like 2000, 2001, um, I switched. I was doing a lot of CDs that first year. 99, 2000, I put out a bunch of CDs and then I switched to CDRs just because I couldn't stand the minimum ordering of like, I don't need 500 CDs in my house, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. I finally found places that would do like 300. They would go down to 300 and that was the lowest, Um, which is still kind of, it seems like that's still the lowest for like an actual record. I don't know. I mean, you would know better than I. You just did one, but I, I get the impression it was 
a lot of places were, it was more like a bazaar. Like you tell me how many you want and I'll give you a price. You know, like it could be a hundred, it could be 300. It yeah. Be- it, see, it seems like all the places, what they do is they, they sort of hide what they're doing. So it's, it's, it'll say duplicate it or replicate it. It'll switch when you're making a quote. So some are actually CDRs, but they're like pro duplicate and they print on right. them and everything. So they look fine. So yeah, I just did one for a, I can't talk about what it is for weird reason. Uh, it's Philly related though. So how about that? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I basically just did it cause I'm like, well, I can't wait a fucking year for vinyl and I needed to keep it kind of cheaper. So I don't know. We'll see what it, where I go with formats. It, it, it might be the kind of thing where I have to get something out. Maybe I've never done cassettes. Maybe I'll do cassettes. You've never done a cassette? No, I've never done never done anything on cassette i was i talked to a couple of people about doing cassettes and it just never they, they got kind of to the point where they could actually make records and people people other people would put them out so right it just didn't make any sense anymore yeah yeah they don't they don't sell very well for me i like doing them because oh, i can yeah, I mean, do them myself or keep the run low but i think you just have to hustle if you did like maybe 50 of something and just keep that, that like jog of like 50 cassettes going maybe you could like you know as benjamin franklin said pennies make dollars <laughs> yeah the stuff i put out a batch of like new new haven related stuff and all the people who are in like stefan christensen and i don't know if you know that scene yeah. at all um that stuff sold well because I think all their fans are already into cassettes and they've all put out cassettes and stuff. But then I do cassettes from other people and they just sit around. So right. I'm just horrible at selling shit. So well, it's hard. It's it's hard to get. I mean, if I didn't have Revolver, it would, that would. I mean, stores most stores don't want to deal direct because they only want what they can sell right now, mm-hmm. and that could only be three copies of something. And if you sell three copies, then the postage is, you know, it's still $5, but it's still like, you know, you're adding on, you have to charge like 15 to $17 wholesale um, to actually make any money, you know, at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, I remember yeah. thinking like when I, I bought a, I bought a record, an RNA organism on vanity years ago, and it was $18. I couldn't believe I spent this much money on that import. And most imports were twelve at the most, and this was like eighteen. I'm like, Jesus Christ! And now that's a that's a domestic record. Yeah, that's a cheap domestic record. <laughs> yeah. God, twenty four ninety nine is this weird well, that's, standard that's, that's, now. Yeah, it's like, what the yeah. fuck? Like, I try to get mine out the door for twenty three. Yeah. Wholesale. Uh, I mean, uh, on the on the band camp, but yeah, you're only doing three hundred, so. That's the new thousand. Three hundred is the new thousand. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, so you've mentioned, and I don't know if you want to. You've mentioned this uh, thirty-three and a third book for the Dead Sea. Is that a thing that's you're working on? I'm not working on it, but someone's uh, working on it. Someone from Australia. It's not. I, I can't remember the guy's name. I'm sorry, um, but he Bruce had I, I, Richard Langston, who he did Garage Fancying, which is the legendary zine from down there. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he brought it up to me through Facebook one day, and I, was, I thought he was kidding at first. And uh, he asked me if it, if it had legs. I'm like, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about it. And then, like, out of nowhere, Bruce wrote me. Said, There's going to be this guy contact you about uh, Primus Mort for a 33 and a third book. 
It's like, okay. So I sent him that article I did for Volcanic Tongue because he didn't know about that. I thought that would give him some insight. I mean, that was kind of like the real story about how that record came to be. Mm-hmm. So he could like glean some information from that. But that was two months ago. I haven't heard anything back from it since. So okay. I assume it's real. If it's not, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a practical joke lost on me. <laughs> If it's not like 40 people will get it too. And well, yeah. I'll tell you, maybe two guys, maybe even more inside than that, like Bruce and the guy put up to it. Yeah, I saw you mention it a few times, and I was just kind of like, I thought maybe you were being coy and maybe you were writing it and you didn't really want to no. say you're writing it, or, or it was all a joke and I couldn't tell. I get the impression that those things don't pay well. It's a more of like trying to get your name out there or something that, yeah, as a, like a writing credit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess I could do it. I mean, I already have all the information, but right. I'm not, I'm too late on it. You know? I would never occur to me that I've never read one of those books. So it would never yeah, me neither. To, yeah. I have I friends who have read them. them and they yeah. like some and don't like, other, you know, cause every artist is different. So, or every author is different. Right. So I would assume they're pretty vanilla books, which yeah. seems like a, a weird record for that, for that series. Yeah. Cause it's basically a complete, it's a, it's a long con really. Yeah. I mean, it's not a really a real life record and uh, it exists just by, you know, surreptitiously or or serendipitously um, it exists, you know, Mm -hmm. out of sheer boredom, I kind of, come on, let's make a live record. (laughs) So, yeah, you went to, you went to New Zealand around that time or have you been back there like a number of times or? I've been three times over. It's 92, 97 and then again in 2013. Okay. The last time I got a, a grant to do some over to go overseas to do some like digging for arch, archive digging. So George Henderson from the Puddle had this band, the And Band. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that. Yeah. yeah um, yep. Steve Burns did that And Band record a couple of years ago. Anyway, George and I had known each other a little bit, and he was like up for that. And he picked me up at this little bed and breakfast or something like the Airbnb I had in Auckland. He was taking me out to his house about 45 minutes away. And on the way, he was like playing me this digitized spies material, which uh, was his band before and band when he was still in Wellington. And it just sounded so great. His brother had digitized this stuff. And uh, they started telling me the backstory. And uh, I was like, well, let's, let's do this. So it had been, I don't do you know the story at all? I mean, it was in that no, record. No. Well, anyway, George and uh, he had this whole like kind of like cabal of people that were, you know, I guess they were kind of ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> they lived in Wellington and they had this band and kind of fumbling. They just had a broken guitar and their pots and pans and kind of stuff. But one of these people found a, uh, a checkbook one day on the street. So they um, started writing bogus checks, but at the same time, they were like, you know, they, were, they had sticky fingers, so they're pinching stuff too, you know, like just stealing things. And like, I don't know if they paid for or stole a two-track recorder. But anyway, so they get back and they set all this stuff up and they just do a bunch of Datura, which is like a natural psychedelic, I guess it's like cactus seeds or something like that. So they're all just like amped up on Datura and like the whole thing was recorded like, like the Amandul sessions just like over the course of two days of just like marathon recordings 
And then after, after somebody got bored and went out and did a breaking and entering somewhere in the suburbs of Wellington and like, while they were like going through the attic of this house, they fell through the floor and into the bedroom of the people who were in bed watching television or something in their house. So he gets arrested, they get him in there. He's got these llama boots on or something, these Cuban heels that are made out of llama. And then they're like, oh, wasn't there a store, like a, 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 a shoe store that reported like a, a bogus check. So like they put this all together through this guy breaking and entering with his llama boots. And then like when he got back there, he told these guys he'd gotten arrested. So they were trying to like hide all the stuff. And then the cops raided the place and everything was confiscated, including the tapes. And uh, they went to court and they were given like, a, you know, it wasn't a severe sentence, but I guess it was pretty, it was like they had to do community service, which I guess was grueling. That's a lot of community service. And when they were done, the uh, judge or the court gave them back their tapes. They, of course, they kept all the gear, but they gave their tapes back to them. And then they sat under Alistair Galbraith's porch for years because he was going to do something. And uh, then uh, George's brother got a hold of them and digitized them. And he got into me and like within like three months, they were, it was a record. We went through, I went through uh, RTI for that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's a great record. <laughs> but a great story. I mean, like, that's wow. That's a great story. <laughs> surprised they were even able to get the tapes back right you would think they would just confiscate that, everything the, that's the craziest thing about it that they even like cared i mean like you know, cops here wouldn't give a shit they would just like they would just go right. into the, you know just be, I would get dumped at some point you know right 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 do you uh yeah i mean you don't have anything like literally on the decks i mean do people say do you get a lot of promos and stuff or demos and stuff like that or no not so much yeah. i used to get more i don't get yeah. so much anymore hmm. there's some stuff going on like um, the vertical slip came about because I had that tape for years, and uh, and after Ever Never did the that I, double triple LP set, yeah, yeah. Jim Shepard thing. I said, like, well, I I already had it. I'd had uh, there's a guy named uh, a place called Prairie Cat out in Illinois years ago that did great mastering. He was a great mastering engineer, so I had him like drop the cassette onto a CDR and clean it up. So it was ready to go. I just had to uh, get cool with Gabe, like Jim's son, about doing it. He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, so there, there was no, you know, it was all up above board. There wasn't any funny stuff going on there. Yeah. his son, Yeah, his son is kind of handling some of the archive stuff or whatever. Well, I guess, you know, he's, he's the, he was the executor of the will, so. Uh, yeah. He has all that stuff, but there were a lot. I mean, like Jim was very mercurial. I mean, he would. There are people all over Columbus that have stuff of his. That he would just let he'd leave with them for whatever reason, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's tons of material out there. Like it was same same thing with that Angus McLeese release that I kind of went in collaboration with those guys like Quake Basket and, and uh, Ira Cohen. Like Tim Barnes and I had talked for a while about like, you know, where's all this stuff? And everyone just assumed Lamont Young had it all. Yeah, and right. And then Ira Cohen walked in one day to where Tim worked and uh, had all this stuff. And uh, he was like, oh my God, you know, like, and then they talked about doing releases. So I did, I did, I'd signed on for the first two and then I, I, I dropped out of, of that. 
Yeah. But it was the same kind of thing. Like, you know, suddenly all this stuff's in right right here. And like so like whatever you thought was going on wasn't going on. There there it was like it there it was it was around in a lot of places, not just Lamont Young's collection. Right, right, right. Yeah, that was the two you did two CDs of yeah. Angus stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just watched a couple times the documentary. Uh, oh yeah, Velvet right. Underground documentary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought then, it, at first it would be like a warts to all thing, and then I realized that wasn't the point, and I liked it better the second time. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of, um, I was surprised at how much of the early pre stuff they covered in it, um, and I know most of that stuff I know from John Schoen is just he's flooded me with information for years and he turned me on to like when the Angus stuff started coming out, he's like, Oh, you got to get that. That's like the first Velvet Underground drummer and you know, stuff like that. And Tony, you know, I came across Tony Conrad through table, of the elements. And then he kind of told right. me, Oh yeah, he was involved in that scene too. And, and then Tony, you know, taught in uh, Buffalo for years and would come out here and play shows sometimes. Um, so it was kind of neat to actually get the, I mean, I wish there was probably more on Angus, you know, there's he's referenced a couple of times. That's about it. I don't um, think there's much on him. I think that, you know, he was there for a little bit. And then when Mo or somebody couldn't make it out to Chicago on some early shows, he, he showed up and played drums and then he just like kind of like got rid of him. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. 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 I don't think it was the most reliable. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just finally re I, I just finally grabbed those vinyl, the two or three vinyl releases that were put out. Or like silk screen yeah, cover, you know, the yeah. handmade. That was uh, through Boohoo Ray who bought yeah. um Ira Cohen's archives. Oh, okay. I remember one time being in New York at the studio and seeing all these real to real tapes and seeing like one or two that said Angus Tony John. And you could imagine who that was. So, right. but that never, that stuff never got on the table for the, for what I was doing with those guys. And I don't think they wanted, I got the impression Ira didn't want to um, do any of it simply because I don't think he wanted to contact them or, or give them any money or whatever, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it would entail. Mm -hmm. So eventually I just, you know, whenever it came out, I think Tony Conrad's on one of those records, right? Yeah, I think so. I think the uh, Dream Weapon, there's one through three or one through four. I think he's on one of them. Yeah. Yeah, because then I got the John Cale, the Table of the Elements ones, the three they put out, or Zarek, yeah. maybe it might have been. Um, yeah, we just watched the documentary in my garage. That was so the third time I watched it. John didn't, uh, he doesn't have Apple Plus or whatever the hell it's on, so we kind of hooked up a projector and I hooked, nice. hooked up some speakers and jammed it out while it rained for <laughs> it rained like two inches that day here. We've been getting pounded with rain. And then I come in my house and there's fucking water in my basement. Oh, nice. But luckily, get that sometimes. I just watched that Sparks there. documentary last night. It was really great. Oh, I heard that's good. Yeah. I don't know. That's a band that I like. I know a little bit about Sean has talked about them a lot. The Wolf Eyes guys always talk about them. Um, I don't well, know. I just always thought they were Devo for Todd Rundgren fans, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot more to them than that. They are that, but there's a lot more to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I should check that out. So I learn a little bit more about them, but all right, cool. Well, thanks for uh, joining me for this, man. Um, thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah. 
it was good uh talking to you and catching up and stuff like that hope you got the information you wanted i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah welcome back so i want to thank tom again for uh doing the interview being a great guest it was a lot of fun uh, listening to his uh, stories of, uh, you know, where he grew up and stuff like that and how he got exposed to different music and bands and start the label sort of, you know, by accident. Um, he's a, yeah, he's just a really nice and funny guy and interesting dude. This is uh, Harry Pussy in the background. Uh, this is a repressing, I think, on, I want to say Superior Viaduct. I didn't have the original. Uh, the original is Silpreeze, of course. Um, this is one of the records I think my buddy Rob uh, had me searching for uh, when we were digging through bins uh, on our road trip and that was in 90 I, I, the date I think I said in the interview was maybe wrong. it was the fall of 94 um, I was working for about a year after school came back Rob was already on a road trip uh, so I, I flew down to Florida and met him and uh, we hit uh, just a ton of cities mainly along the south and spent a lot of time in texas because we had uh, uh some good friends down there so we spent like three weeks in texas i want to say uh, a couple in houston and one in austin uh just hitting record stores like crazy and bookstores and rob was uh like i said trying to he was searching for very silpreys records and i think harry pussy ones in particular and we definitely saw Harry Pussy in, in Houston, and I think we saw him in Austin, too. Uh, I feel like we saw him twice. I don't think I mentioned this in the interview, but uh, in the Houston show, I was in the back of the thing, and I was you know, I was really freaked out by Adrius because she seemed a little insane. And uh, I realized standing next to me is this really tall dude, and it was Gibby Haynes. <laughs> so I was, I was a little starstruck. I'm like, wow. And he's, he's a tall guy with like a – he's got like a big head. Um, a physically a big head, so yeah, it was it was a weird um, it was a weird time all around. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks again to Tom. Uh, I'm gonna play a smattering of tracks from the Silpreeze catalog. Uh, some from Seven Inches, some from LPs. I'll list them all in the show notes uh, with the catalog numbers and stuff like that. So if you can, if you want, you can track them down. Um, and uh, thanks again for listening. Again, this is My Teeth Need Attention. You can follow us uh, at me at My Teeth Need Attention on Instagram. MyTeethNeedAttention.com has links to various uh, ways to listen to the show. Uh, share uh, this show with your friends and uh, like and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. And uh, and, and that's it. I'll, uh, I'll come back at the end and give you a, a track listing of what, what, what I play. Um, so uh, enjoy. This is some more hairy pussy. Oh, my God. 
must be ill. It's the war of the worlds. Here come the Martians with their banners unfurled. They'll feel your stomach turning over with dread. You know if you don't run, you will be dead. War of the worlds, 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 worlds. You see the Martians and you scream mindless screams. Look from the demon like you never have dreamed. Look on intelligent beyond our grass. They are exterminating us like ants. They are the running as their towns turn to dust. Look on our guiding, see the tentacles crash.
and welcome back. What you're hearing here is uh, Angus MacLeese, uh, the title track from the Invasion of Thunderbolt Pagoda. This is a CD that Tom put out. Before that, Mike Rep and the Quotas with War of the Worlds from the Stupor Hiatus Double LP. Before that, Gate with Prophet Rebel. That's a side A of that 7-inch. Before that, the Dead Sea with Sky. And that version is from Heart 70's Reality Double LP. Um, before that, the Renderers with A Dream of the Sea. That's the title track from an LP that uh, Silk Breeze put out. Technically, the C- they put out the CD and then it got repressed on vinyl a few years ago from another label. Uh, before that, Monkey 101 with You Have Left Me. That's from the French Feeling 7-inch. And that, that showed up on the uh, Tartan Furthered uh, compilation, as well as the track before that by Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments, Negative Gu- Guest List. Uh, that's from the, I think that's the title of the 7-inch as well. And uh, we started that off with uh, a chunk of Harry Pussy from their self-titled LP. Started out with Dream Diver, and then it kind of goes on because all of that blends together. Thanks again for listening. Uh, again, thanks to Tom for doing the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I highly encourage you to track down some Silk Breeze records if you um, aren't familiar and you dug what I played today. Uh, the label, I mean, I don't remember ever being disappointed by a Silk Breeze record. How's that? <laughs> They're always uh, really interesting. You know, when I first got the Tartan Further 7-inch comp, uh, there were a few tracks where I was like, eh, I don't know if I like it. And now they're, like, my favorite tracks. Um, like that Monkey 101. And, um, you know, different things that were more, like, dirgy or rock. Uh, at the time, I was I was kind of getting more into noise stuff. And, yeah, I, I, gotta, I gotta say, it's the label is a strong, uh, a damn strong label. And he's still going strong. I just got a, uh, another LP from him just recently that everyone's playing now. It's kind of a mm, boot, maybe. I don't. I can't tell. But um, it's really yeah. It, it, I highly encourage you to check out the label, dive in, and uh, not you know the stuff is still available. You can find it on Discogs and stuff like that. And of course, uh, go right to the source. Uh, Silpreys has a. Uh, Bandcamp page, it's silkbreeze.bandcamp.com so I encourage you to go up there he's got a ton of stuff still in stock yeah that, that new that new thing uh, he just put out uh, I just got the other day, I didn't want to play it on here just yet uh, it's a compilation called the Bunnington Ford Long Playing Album it's kind of early uh, UK uh, compilation so, yeah, check that out. That's up on Bandcamp. Um, the CIA debutante. I didn't really play uh, recent releases um, from the label, but CIA debutante's awesome. The Peter J. Cox Running Away LP is awesome. Uh, and then there's just tons of uh, this, like, kind of uh, New Zealand reissues and, and getting to the light of day, like Max Block and... Um, 
shoes this high and stuff like that. So yeah, definitely check them out. I'm gonna uh, play a little more Angus McLeese and then I'm gonna end you uh, end today with uh, Cheryl Lamaday's a track called "Think About." It's from the Market Square Double LP. Uh, one of the uh, earlier uh, Silpery's 46 and 47. He numbers his double LPs. He numbers with two catalog numbers. Just so you know, uh, when you're looking at my track listing, uh, some of the things will be like two numbers, like this number slash another number, and that's why his double LPs he gives two catalog numbers to. All right, thanks again for listening. This is my teeth need attention. Uh, tell your friends, rate and review us, um, and I appreciate it. I have an interview in the can. I just need to edit it. Uh, interview with Bruce Russell of the Dead Sea and Handful of Dust. And then, you know, he also ran Corpus Hermeticum and Expressway labels. So I have that. I hope to edit and get out in a few weeks. I'll probably get a music episode out before then. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. All right. Take care and uh, have a great one. See you next time. Bye.
Tom, I'll give it all up. Pick up the phone, please. Please pick up the phone. Pick up the phone or I'm going to kill myself right now. I'm going to kill myself right now if somebody does not pick up the fucking phone. I'm going to Houston tonight if somebody does not pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone now. Please, somebody pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone now. 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 Please pick up the phone. I'm going to call the police and tell them that somebody has committed suicide there. Please pick up the phone. Or I'm going to do that. And then you have to contend with the police. Please pick up the phone. Please. Please pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. I'm going to do something crazy right now. Please pick up the phone. Damn it. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone now.
Thank you.